Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Remote Control, the Variety's TV podcast. I'm Deborah Brenbaugh. Every week, we'll bring you conversations with some of the best in Variety's in television, working behind and in front of the camera. On today's episode, we're talking about The Good Fight with producers Michelle and Robert King. Stay tuned. I couldn't be more excited about this panel. Um, you know, they've created some of my favorite shows, and obviously yours too. So let's just bring them out. Michelle and Robert King. Good morning. This is nice. I feel like we should have brunch. We should have coffee. Anyway. Um, so, first of all, congratulations on season two of Good Fight. I mean, it's... it's thank you. I mean, not that the first season wasn't great, but it really feels like it found its voice in the second season. You know, how do you guys feel about it? How did you get to that place with the show? I think, I think you may be right. I, we had a little more opportunity going into season two to really think about it as a whole. So I think that allowed us to make it more, more of one thing, more one tone. And we were reading the news. <laughs> <laughs> so how much did the news influence the story that you wanted to tell in the second season? How much do you lean into that? We start the season saying we would not talk about Trump at all or the current administration. That, that, would be out? A, an, <laughs> that it would be an optimistic season. Our worry, not even to be good little boys and girls, but because... There was so much. The, the current administration was infecting so much of the culture. It felt like people were tired of it, and then that didn't work out. It really... Yeah, I mean, you go in the writers' room, and if suddenly that's the only thing anyone can talk about, it really it has to be on the page. So we just decided to hang a lantern on it, which was part of Diane's problem. That's Christine Bransky's character is how much of the culture is infected with how hard it is to get away from it. And that became the subject of the year. Not so much the substance, although there was some of that, of it, but how it was infecting the culture. But you also, you know, you talk about what's happening on both sides of the aisle. You don't play favorites. You're very fair to both sides. Or, 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 or sat- satirical of both sides, I should say. And, and that's deliberate. I feel like with The Good Wife, we were able to be a little more even-handed. I mean, satire goes on both sides in both shows, in this show, it feels like it's a little more pointed than what we would have wanted, frankly. It, would, it was a little difficult. Uh, so much of the insanity that we were inspecting in Brain Dead, which was this series that landed in between the two, was how there's an insanity that comes with that much partisanship. And the difficulty was it would not really be honest to point the finger so much of the Democratic side because the Democrats... We're sort of out of power. So it's pretty much how a TV reality star who uses some of the TV language and understanding 
allows himself to infect the culture because you, there's a real narcissistic tendency under there. And then it's not really about him. It's re- really about someone like Diane, who's a liberal, comes from a liberal family. How does she handle it in a country that she feels is going insane? So she microdoses. <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> Naturally. As one does. How did you come up with that idea? Well, there, was a, there were a few articles about Silicon Valley and these, you know, it's, it's such a bullshit uh, way to just allow yourself to get addicted. And it felt like, oh, Diane would not be someone if you said, okay, here's cocaine, let's go snort it in the bathroom. She wouldn't be, she's like too elegant. Christine Baranski is so elegant. But it was like, if you kind of gave her just this little like little vial that just looks like, oh, that's so charming. And, and just, and then, like a lot of people, you find, like in the news now, it's suicide. But at the time, it just felt like everybody was dying. 2017 was a bad year. And so to play off the idea of Diane seeing a lot of people dying, and that would kind of egg her into, I'm kind of done a little bit with reality. I need to put it aside. And, and she was so confused anyways. We like the idea of then upping the ante that, okay, now she doesn't even know if it's psychedelics or just the world is that off. How far can you push it? How far you know, can you go within the limits of the show? You mean with uh, the dosing or? No, with you know, the fantasy, like what she's imagining. Well, she thought the president was speaking with mermaids. <laughs> that that might be far, far enough. Uh, <laughs> There's, uh, it's not one of Kubrick's, Kubrick's best movies, but Eyes Wide Shut had this kind of reality that you're also wondering how much of it's dream and how much of it's reality. We kind of wanted to go towards this place that um, you never could distinguish. There's a faulty narrative aspect or narrator aspect of not knowing what she's seeing is true. Is there a pig in the map room of the White House, pot-bellied pig, or is that? And Sarah Steele looks at her like, are you insane? So you, you were always wanting to not be aware of what was real and what was not. How, how do you find the right tone for the show? I always joke that it's one of the funniest shows on TV that's masquerading as a drama. How do you strike that right balance? Well, I think our impulse is always to satirize, and so we, it probably starts there. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem with a lot of TV shows right now is they take themselves very, very seriously. And, I mean, you know, that's sometimes good, like the terror does it, and it's amazing. But then other shows, it's just like, oh, come on, get off yourself. And, you know, the showrunners are full of themselves, too. I'm sorry, but some of them are. And so part of it is to go into it with not this sense of, yeah, we're talking about serious immigration, capital punishment, but where, is, where are the laughs? So, you know, it's, that's, I think, key. It, it helps that the characters don't take themselves too seriously or their work too seriously, actually. I mean, no one on the show thinks they're actually there to do good. They're there to be good lawyers and win cases and make money. So I think that helps. And part of that is a reaction to the way law shows are thought of before. I don't watch as many now, but it's a reaction to the law shows where usually about people who are out to change society and... You know, we're only going to take cases where people are innocent. It's like, that's so bullshit. I mean, that's not what reality is. So, And we see in the finale that um, Christine Baranski's character, Diane, kind of crosses a line. Exactly. What, what, I, what I personally love about it, that is we adore the character, and yet uh, Audra McDonald's character questions it. 
and we also adore her. So the fact that you can see both sides of it with these two characters, I think, really helps. In TV, or at least in TV rooms, it used to be called the moment of shit, which was the moment when the main character learned something. Uh, South Park always satirizes that, that the, in the end, everybody has learned something. And it felt like the thing to learn at the end of the season was the best way to handle the current reality is to lie. To, you know, in other words, to flip the whole uh, usual moral understanding is that the right thing to do is to be honest. and be, But the real lesson of the season is the best way to handle this is to be your own authority of your own morality and lie if you have to. Is that one of the themes you wanted to explore in the second season? The idea of situational ethics. Well, it's, what we like the idea of is they're responding to what they see in the administration and frustrated by it, and are they then ultimately corrupted by it? I mean, the, the good wife was always, the good was ironic. You know, that that was her public presence. That good was really meant that, really, she was bad in many ways. And it was still her public presence was as a good wife. Here I think it's the same thing with the good fight. It's like at a certain point, do you take on the characteristics of the enemies that you're fighting? Given that, like, what do you think the role is of television in this current administration? I mean, you talked about how some other showrunners have handled it. You know, how can TV respond to what we're seeing playing out in headlines? Well, I think late night has really, you know, been the ones in the, for- in the forefront and really making fun of it and having a good time. I mean, we had a panel yesterday with David Simon who was, uh, you know, is much more activist than we are. You know, he's like, you know, every show... Every TV show has a political element. And I, I don't think we go that far, or I don't want to disagree with you. No. I, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you Bless you. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, he's constrained, although he said it was a benefit, to be working in a period piece. He's doing the deuce right now. Um, we're, unlike most shows, we're not only present day, but we're present day where the present administration is actually in charge, as opposed to something like Homeland or Madam Secretary, where they have fictional presidents. So, you know, that gives us an opportunity. And we're also aided by the fact, this is a real advantage, is, uh, although it's a scary advantage, we shoot right up almost to when we're showing. So the, the last episode was shown, like, two weeks ago? Anyway, we finished shooting it three weeks before it was on the air. So it allows you... It's scary because there's this window. At the start of the year, the window is like three months, and then it closes down, closes down. You could be try to be as current as possible, uh, but you're always a little worried, like the like they're going to discover the golden shower tape, and then that episode is <laughs> is history. Not uh, so. Anyway, that's the worry about uh, it. But there's an advantage of it, and that's one of the advantage network has is you can be current. Is that an advantage you have because it's streaming? Does that shorten the window for you guys, or is it just the way that your process works? It, it depends how you schedule it. I mean, we schedule it similarly to network in that we're filming and writing and editing at the same time. I know some shows, they write all the episodes, then they film them all, then they edit them all. And then, so they don't have that same luxury of being current. Is that, do you do that so you can be more responsive to headlines, or is it just the way you've always worked? I don't think it starts that way. I think it starts as a way to save money because then you don't have offices. You have everything under the same roof, and you're not spread out over a year. You're, you, I mean, we start in August, end of August, and we finish 
January, beginning of May. Is that right? So, and if things had been spread out, it probably would take over your year. But we find a great advantage in the writer's room being able to react to dailies. So we watch all the dailies, and then we're seeing where the chemistry exists. You know, how is Kushjumbo, which, you know... Um, Justin and, you know, and is Alan Alda really great with Christine? So then in the next episode, let's have that confrontation scene between the two of them as opposed to him with Audra McDonald. So you can, I think it is the way we work, but I think it started as a way for CBS to save money. (laughs) How much are you writing to the characters and their abilities at this point? I mean, Christine Baranski's characters, you know, evolved so much and she's really stepped up into that leading role. Well, with our regulars, they can pretty much do anything. So it's, there's nothing we really have to avoid. They can all, the drama is spectacular. They can all do comedy. We're incredibly fortunate. And they all can sing. We yeah. just never use it. Oh I, my want God. A mus- I want a musical episode. Can we <laughs> confirm it? <laughs> yeah, I do too. <laughs> we I only do musical episodes with people who can't sing. We had <laughs> Carrie Preston singing in one episode. She's tone deaf, or at least she was in the episode. <laughs> Poor Carrie. No, I saw Audra McDonald at a concert in L.A. recently, and she was just tremendous. Right? Mm-hmm. I know. And they all can. I mean, it, it's, it kills me. And they sing whenever we cut. They start singing to each other. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, my gosh. <laughs> DVD extras. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea. I know. Well, I mean, it, it, it would fit into the fantasy sequence. I'm just, I'm pitching ideas here, you know. Um, <laughs> um, talk about how you run your writers' room. How do the two of you work together? Do you ever disagree? <laughs> <laughs> we occasionally, we have a, first of all, an incredibly smart room of writers, and a very nice, adult, civilized room of writers. So it actually. It's a pretty great place to spend the day. We moved the writer's room from L.A. to New York a year ago, and so most of them are playwrights, if not all of them, but like... Virt- virtually. Yeah, and um, what we do is we start end of August. We start with two weeks where we're going to arc out the year. Usually there's some thought we have for what the year is going to be. Um, last year that didn't work out because we thought the year was going to be about tort reform which was exciting, really <laughs> exciting. We were going to make the most uh, suspenseful tort reform show on TV. <laughs> and then we pitched it to CBS, and they were like, yeah, that's, that's really interesting, and we trust you. Um, but you could just tell, like, oh, my God, what are we doing? And so then we went back in the room, and John Tolens, who's one of the writers who's a great playwright on he wrote Byron Seller, the one-man show about Barbara Streisand's uh, mall in her basement or whatever. <laughs> yes. Anyway, he came up. He was joking. He said, look, if this were Grey's Anatomy, we'd have a killer loose killing doctors. So that was just like he was expecting it to be kind of pushed out of the way. It was like, okay, now we're, you know, suddenly. <laughs> so there was a real excitement over the first two weeks because kind of all bets are off. Usually we come in with like the tent poles. The, when it was 22 episodes, Good Wife, there were like five ten poles over the year that we knew we were writing towards. There was a year where, like, Josh Charles was killed. We knew that we were dividing up Josh Charles, uh, the character. Will Gardner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Josh is doing well in his medical on Broadway. <laughs> we divided up by fives. The first five episodes were supposed to take us to the breakup of the law firm and them fighting. And then the second five were supposed to take us 
to the point where he puts her on the stand and confronts her about their relationship. We didn't know how we'd get there, but we wanted to. And the next five would take us to him being killed in court. Um, And then the last seven were going to be her coming back from a mental breakdown over it, uh, Juliana Margulies' character. And I think once you have those tent poles, the room then, you had to be able to break it up into smaller pieces so the room had something that they could build towards. Now that it's 13 episodes, we kind of just have a midway, uh, like this season, sorry to give something away, close your ears if someone hasn't seen this season. Seriously, close your ears. <laughs> your ears. Um, is we knew we were working towards Delroy Lindo's character being shot. So we didn't know, we, we knew where we wanted that to land, and then we knew what the end of the year would be. I'm not letting you get away without the disagree question. Do you ever disagree? <laughs> we do occasionally disagree. The things we disagree most about are so minor and stupid. I remember fighting for a day and a half about whether U.S was abbreviated with a period or not. So, but the big stuff, nah, that, that goes easy. There is one big one, which was in Good Wife. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> there, was a, there was a silly bit where a character, who was the actress who played her? Uh, the Australian actor. Yeah. Uh, George, uh, Melissa George. Melissa George was pregnant, and she said the baby's name was Peter. And there was this wonderful Alan Alda, Alan Alda, Alan Cumming does this wonderful spit take at that. And we love that. Obviously, it was a great end to an episode, but we never had any way to claw that back. We, we knew it, we was, it was a silly cliffhanger, but you also had then had to address it. And I was suggesting to the room that we get Peter Bogdanovich to be the actual father so that Peter would make sense which was stupid as can be. <laughs> and the whole room, you know that when the writer's room looks at you like, okay, yeah, you're testing us, aren't you? Uh, and we and Juliana Margulies disagreed on that. You were on Juliana's side. Mm-hmm. And we ended up doing it because we had no other end to this episode. So anyway, that was it. Who's actually in your writer's room? What's the makeup? We've been talking a lot this weekend about diversity and parity. So what does your writer's room look like? Because obviously that should be reflected on screen given you know, the law firm that Diane's working in. You're, you're asking for in terms of how many men, women, da da da. Um, there were seven writers. Yes? Three women. With you. Yeah. Uh, two oh, Afri- I, was, I, was in, I was not including us. No. Oh, right. Then there two African-American. Two African-American men, three, three women. Three gay? Yes. No, this, this is terrible. Yeah, no. It's, because it's, we're not, when we go we through it. <laughs> we don't like, think in those terms. Um, you know, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. It's just no, it, no. it's relevant to how but the story is But it is very tell. relevant to the, you know, I mean, it's an African-American law firm. So, um, one writer in his mid-60s, a number of us in our 50s. You know, I mean... It, Regionally, there are people from New York, Florida. And religiously, kind of all over the map, too. Yes. And politically? No, unfortunately not. (laughs) (laughs) I would not go well. Yeah, yeah, you go try to find some New York writers that are not on the left. Uh, We did on um, Good Wife. Oh, who? Mike Swap, you. Oh, do I sound kind of echoey? Um, on Good Wife, we had um, uh, Craig Turk, 
who was a lawyer for John McCain's campaigns, and he was fantastic. I mean, part of it is trying to get that cross. I'm probably the most conservative person in the room. I mean, it is preferable to have people on with different ideas on different subjects. I mean, one doesn't ask that in an interview. It's First of all, it's just completely inappropriate. But um, it would be ideal. And, you know, if you start narrowing it down to... How do you feel about gun control? How do you feel about abortion? Actually, people don't all have the same points of view. So, you know, that's fortunate for us. Where our show is actually very much about women is in production. Yeah. Uh, it's every, all the keys, basically, except maybe DP. There, uh, it are, was like 45% women, which is not typical for a crew. Yeah, and not typical, I think, for a New York crew. Part of that is we have a great EP who runs it, Brooke Kennedy, who um, has, goes way, I mean, I hate to date her, but she goes way back to, uh, I think her first thing was on Kramer versus Kramer. And she's been working in New York and, and finding great women in all the positions. And I don't think she goes out of the way. It's just she's, no, I don't know why. You know, she just, it's just we have super competent people that happen to be female. Exactly. So uh, what do you look for then when you're staffing a room? You know, are you looking for a diversity of voices and perspectives? Well, first of all, we read dozens and dozens of scripts. Um, on top, then, of course, we meet people. You, you can't have anyone if they can't write. The only thing we will put our finger on the scale for is lawyers when we're doing a law show because you really need at least a couple writers who are also attorneys which is easier to find than you would think. There, 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 there are a fair number, especially in Los Angeles, a fair number of uh, writers who started out as lawyers. So that's very helpful. It's a little harder to find in New York. Do you prefer... Sorry, if I could oh, take please. over for a no. <laughs> Do you prefer specs or do you prefer... You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, as a... Spec- originals or first specs? Or, well, typically all we get are originals at this point. Very few people are writing oh, specs. Well, I heard you talk. Did you mind specs? I like specs, but I seem to be in a minority. Do people know what... Then you must know what we mean by specs. Okay. Yeah. So it's a potential script for the show. But it's, um, it's where you're tra- trying to copy the tone of an right. existing show. And how do you feel about that? I mean, Robert... I don't read, so... <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's a Michelle it, department. Yeah, no, I mean, it's... Divide and conquer, you can't do everything. So I'll typically do that reading, and you know, Robert is taking forefront in the editing. How else do you divide and conquer? Who does what? Um, you do wardrobe. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's obvious, right? Um. Um, <laughs> and if you saw the, uh, my hotel room production design, yeah. Um, you gallop ahead on the writing. On the writing, you do casting. I mean, we really do divide it up. We both do writer's room, but there's a, we're doing a second show now in L.A. that we're not show running, but we're producing. Um, and it's a showtime called, show called Your Honor. Probably we'd, they, we'd all be back here next year with that. Peter Moffat, who's this great writer. Uh, if you saw The Night Of, did everybody see The Night Of? It was... Well, thank you. I'm going to take credit for that. <laughs> he didn't do it. He wrote the original British one that it's based on, and he's doing Your Honor, which is based on an Israeli format. So it means Michelle zipping back to L.A. a lot, because we're now we're New York creatures. And amazing, given that you do so many shows that are set in Chicago. What is it about Chicago that appeals to you? 
Does it allow you to tell a certain kind of story? Well, you know what? We, we started it in Chicago, The Good Wife in Chicago, for a specific reason. I mean, it really suited us well. It needed to be a city where you could believe corruption. <laughs> it, it also needed to be small enough that it made sense that these characters would bump into each other on a regular basis and it didn't feel contrived. And then when it came to the good fight, because we film in New York, we had a choice to make. Because we could have shifted this new law firm to a New York law firm, but then we realized it wouldn't make sense for them to bump into all the characters we'd created in The Good Wife who lived in Chicago. You know, we wanted Dennis O'Hare back as one of the judges. Suddenly, what are all these... What, yeah, did all I mean, the judges get moved? Everybody to, moved. To <laughs> Everyone moved. Yeah, no, it becomes very contrived. So as a result, that's why we're again in Chicago, fictional Chicago. And your honor is in uh, New Orleans. How much do you enjoy being able to play with, you know, bringing characters from The Good, fight, good Wife over to The Good Fight? That's great. Yeah, I it, mean, it's partly about the actors, too. The actors are incredible, and you, you just don't want to lose that voice. Um, Probably the hardest thing in the writer's room, to go back to the writer's room, we should make that a theme of this because we should keep returning that because one of the hardest things for the writer's room is we plan to get Mamie Goomer, for example, who plays, uh, what's the character's name? Nancy Crozier, who has a, a very particular voice. And then like four days before, we lose her because you know we don't own these actors. We're only getting them for an episode, so we lose her to something else. And so you can't just plug in, oh, let's plug in this voice. It means a complete redoing of what is the comedy of that character. In what way do those people go up against Christine Baranski? Because you can't mimic that. So that is one of the dangers and the pitfalls of the writer's room is it has to be very fleet-footed to try to work around different voices. What it is is it's the danger of trying to do serialized storytelling. Mm -hmm. I mean, because I think it would be far easier if we were only doing standalone episodes, then you know it's like, okay, I need to bring in a perp, I need to bring in a new lawyer, and you know, if you can't cast A, you cast B. But you can't do that if you've cast, say, Gary Cole as Diane Lockhart's husband. You need to see her husband again. We don't have a contract with Gary Cole, so you have to hope it works out. You know, it it just makes it a lot trickier. The other difficulty is uh, we get a lot of theater actors, a ton of them, and you have to work around their theater schedules. So you're always trying to minimize um, who plays Neftali uh, from uh, Band's Visit. Katrina Link. Katrina Link, this wonderful actress in a play called band's visit but we always had to kind of tighten her part because she had to go we have to let him go at five is that right to make makeup to get on stage by eight it's it's a little crazy and by the way we knew all these pitfalls going in we knew it was going to be harder to produce a show telling in in a serialized manner and we did it anyway so we really we bring it on ourselves the other complication is the scheduling as you move through the week, because of union rules, you always start later and later in the day because you have to give actors their turnaround. So sometimes with some of these actors, you have to let them go to the theater at 5, but late in the week you may be starting at noon. So it just it, it creates a lot of issues. And, you know, it's, it's the assistant directors that deal with this, and they're the heroes. Yeah. 
I want to. You've been talking about the casting process too. I know you use a lot of theater actors. What is it you look for in actors that you want to bring? What is it about theater actors that make them good for the show? Well, one thing is they always come prepared, and and so I know our regular cast members who also have spent a lot of time in the theater really appreciate that. When you're in the editing room room a lot or watching the dailies, you always get a sense. Oh, this is a man. This is a woman who can play deadpan excellently, which is part of the com- comedy isn't just who tells the joke. The other person is who receives the joke. And you're always looking for someone who can kind of hit that sweet spot um, of not doing too much. Uh, a lot of actors who come in want to impress you, especially day players, and so they'll overwork it. And when they overwork it, you're, then what we would do, actually, we'd go in the editing room and we'd slow down their performance so the deadpan would last longer between some tick they did. <laughs> so you're always looking for the actor who knows comically how to not overwork something. And the show's also great for its diversity in, you know, in terms of you know, having a strong female lead character, as much as I'm starting to hate saying that over and over, but also diversity in terms of people of color and you know, um, different sexualities as well. How is, is that important to you guys? Well, it more, it just, it flowed out of the story. It just, we wanted to see Diane Lockhart in a completely different type of firm. We wanted to see her as an underdog starting out, so she lost all her money. You know, so it really, it flowed from the storytelling. And then, you know, we've had great good fortune with the actors we're able to work with. And the other thing of having a lot of African Americans in the firm is you didn't need to worry uh, if you made one a villain or if you made one a Trump supporter. You suddenly, it gave you a lot more ability to show, and our writers the ability to show the expanse of humanity as opposed to, oh, we got to worry he's the one African-American friend of the hero. He's got to be good or he's got to be, you know. um, You find a lot of people apologizing now. I think Quantico just apologized for having Indian... um, terrorists or something, you know, but the more you have this not as a unique one person because you're, you know, you're playing into, I got to diversify the cast, it allows you to play it and not feel like you have to apologize for it. Has there ever been anything you've done that you felt that you had to apologize for? Any moment you felt went too far? Uh, I was going to say, any apologies would be for creative missteps, like or like a joke that didn't land, as opposed to Oh, we've offended anybody. I still feel like I have to apologize for Clinda's husband from <laughs> season four. So, <laughs> I mean, and it's not the actor's fault. It was we didn't see that as an issue. We thought, oh, this will be interesting, and so that would be another thing. I don't think politically, have we done anything politically? I'm trying if to remember. We have we haven't woken up to it yet? <laughs> uh, no, no, because. First of all, I think we go under the radar a little bit because it's not it's, – it's trying to be an intelligent show, and I don't think our audience is that massive. So, you know, it's not like – It uh, should be. Yeah. Well, like, <laughs> and I think Good Wife in the end because of people seeing it overseas and stuff. Um, but I don't think there's been anything that we've been blamed for when we probably should be blamed for stuff, too. <laughs> There's time. <laughs> like we did, I'm sorry, with the first season we did one where it was um, uh, 
a drawing or a cartoon of Muhammad. Um, and there was a bombing of the offices that created. And I think the, you know, the worry was is that uh, a lot of Muslim groups were worried that the, the, the killer or the terrorist is always Muslim. Anyway, it became just a lot of confusion because the story took a lot of twists. So in the end, it was a Muslim person who, who threw the bomb. But because there were so many complications and turns, it didn't seem like it was as much finger-pointing. So I think that is some of the way to get around it is just by complicated plots. People can't follow. They can't follow the P, you know. <laughs> Are there things that you haven't gotten to do in the first two seasons that you want to do in the third season? Have you started thinking about season three? Yes. <laughs> uh, we have a reality star president, and it felt like... Um, if we were honest with ourselves, part of it is TV itself. Part of the problem is TV. Not TV news, but TV entertainment and storytelling. And one of the problems of being in a post-factual world is narrative is taking the... Narrative seems to have the honesty that people find they're not getting from facts. And that is bullshit. That's a lie. And so part of the next year would be very meta. We start with this credit sequence that has a lot of things blowing up. What we want to do is now see the backdrop drop and explode and then the C-stands that hold it up exploding and then see the side of the walls of the soundstage exploding so that you're getting the sense. I think the more the show looks at the problem of narrative and the hero with a thousand faces and all that, then you could see that uh, we're all kind of like cats jumping at yarn when we see a story, but when you see a fact that is unadorned, you ignore it for the story. And I think... Trump and others in the administration use that sense of the shock of the of the turn that you want to kind of distract. So anyway, I think that's what we want to do with next season without going any further. How much freedom do you feel that this is on a streaming platform? I know you've also got a show coming out on cable. Having come from the broadcast world, beyond just being able to use four-letter words, which you are doing beautifully, by the way. <laughs> we had a lot of freedom on CBS, the network. I mean, we really did. It was very rare that they had any issue with a concept we wanted to bring forth or an argument. So that's felt familiar. The difference is the language, the nudity, and what's been most valuable is is something you wouldn't ordinarily think about, is the fact that we can vary the length of the episode. It can be as long or short as we feel like it needs to be. And that's rather nice as opposed to, okay, it must be 42 minutes. It was very difficult in the editing room cutting down what were 58-minute episodes to 42 minutes when you were there. So even you watch the episodes now, now they just seem like they're all, they're all just talking so fast and overlapping. And that was all adjusting in the editing room. I think these episodes can calm down a little bit. We're still into... We're like an OCD kind of show, but I think um, uh, there's a little more pace, a little more willingness to be paced. Yeah, I mean, if if there's any freedom, I think it might be sort of self-imposed as opposed to network-imposed. We're a niche now, as opposed to, you know, we don't think of ourselves as having an audience of 16 million people. So you can have 
your main character microdosing on psilocybin. You know, that kind of thing, or, or do something about the golden shower tape, and feel like, okay, our slice is going to enjoy that. <laughs> Very much so. I mean, and you, cause you're, back to the point you were bringing before, you're not just commenting on headlines, you're commenting on entertainment. I mean, you did a whole takeoff on Bachelor in Paradise as well, so it gives you a whole new platform to weigh in on. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we like is people think sometimes the show is a little refined, like Masterpiece Theater or something, so it's always good. No, this is, I mean, I thought the issue with Patron Paradise was fascinating and brought up a lot. I mean, it was all knocked down before it really bubbled up in full force. But, yeah, I mean, as much as the show can be about page six stuff as opposed to all headlines all the time, the better. And is that the stuff that comes up in your writer's room? Is that because you're having those conversations when you sit down? Definitely. That was one that, you know, we started out the year. I mean, typically we'll come in for a couple weeks and just talk about things, that, stories that interest us, issues that interest us. And that, I think that was something you put on, on the board right away. That's like, okay, this is just a fascinating story. What, where's, where can this lead? And then I think what was really helpful is one of our writers had worked on reality TV. So the more you could pull away... I mean, the the shows, as much as they are about making up story, they're also about research. Um, I think writers' rooms, you you lean on the intelligence of the writers and their curiosity about a new subject matter. It's really a dream job because with each episode, we're not trapped. You know, as much as there are really good shows out there like Ozarks and things like that... They really are about telling that one story. What's good here is magazine-like. You can delve into subjects that interest us. We did this NSA story over a certain number of episodes in Good Wife, and it just was fascinating to dig into it. And the good thing, strangely, is that you make calls and people answer them and want to talk about (laughs) their business and their secretive business. We were dealing with assassination this year and the talk of assassination. So we were talking to Secret Service and and how do they deal with these charges and they're very forthcoming. That's amazing. Are there any stories you didn't get to tell? Anything's left on the cutting room floor? I I really want to tell a story about Kevin Williamson being fired from the Atlantic Um, because I do think the danger of the left is the same as the danger of the right, which is an echo chamber that uh, a bubble that is self-imposed. And I you know, that first of all, I thought he was a fun writer, even though I didn't believe, agree with everything he said. And I think there's a story there about the left trying to turn themselves into a mirror of the right because the right is being so effective in its uh, kind of loop of Fox News reporting something, Trump saying something, Fox News. And, and I'm just, the worry is that the left could turn into a version of that. I, I was going to say, you. There's always this tug of you want to go home with these characters, some of them, that we didn't get an opportunity, like we, with uh, Delroy Lindo's character, Adrian Bozeman. We didn't get to go home with him much. And you want to because you want to see more of that character, yet what's so fun is seeing the characters interact with their work family, with the other regulars. So that's always a pull. So you, you, you don't get it all. We had a, when he was in the hospital, he was supposed to have two young women in their 20s kind of coming in to his bedside. And all the workers are like, who the hell are those? And it turns out they're women he was having affairs with or uh, relationships with who didn't know each other, too. So it was supposed to be 
So, and then, so we'll probably pursue that next year. <laughs> Looking forward to that. <laughs> how do you balance the personal and the political? Like, how much do you want to see of these characters' personal lives, and how much do you want to then, or do you want to address political things, you know, issues that you wanted to tackle? Ideally, they all come together in the same scene and the same story. That, that's what you hope. The difficulty about going home was always plot. You needed a plot reason to drive you to home. And it never, it always felt like, okay, we could do it here, we could do it here. But then you, when you put it on the board, the writer's room is a very good judge, a crucible for what story can last and what story can't. Because you really need to convince, everybody needs to convince seven other, seven other people, is this really germane? And I think we'd always would throw it up there, and then it was like, God, but why are we doing that? I mean, what is it, how does that connect to these other thoughts within the story? Um, a writer's room is an amazing development. It's one of the reasons I imagine features are going to it. And I want to talk a little bit more about voice, and then I want to turn it over to you guys for questions. You know, I, was, I promised someone I would ask a question about brain dead, and that almost feels like... Any applause? Anyone? There you go. Thank you. <laughs> waiting, waiting. Um, it almost feels like that show was before its time. Like, if that show were on the air now, do you think it would have had success? I'm not, I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, it was so weird. It, for, for those of you that didn't see it, it was a show about alien bugs that come to Earth and crawl into the ears of politicians and turn them into hyper-partisans. A reality show, in other words. I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> on CBS. So, I mean, it was probably the wrong place and the wrong time. It was a fun show, and we enjoyed it. Um, real politics were so strange and are so strange that I think we were outshone. Yeah, I mean, it was really Congress-centered, which it was interesting. We were on this panel with David Simon, who was saying the real worry, the real is Congress, is not the presidency. But I do think there's such a presidential focus these days in everything. It might, even if it were around today, I think it would seem like dated or like Congress isn't that effective. They're just the lapdogs to the presidency. So, but we loved, it was a very good cast. Uh, Tony Shalhoub was amazing. And Elizabeth. Um, Mary Elizabeth. Mary Winston. Elizabeth. Um, these were people you kind of wanted to follow. We loved the characters. I, we kind of had a, at a certain point, we knew there wasn't much of an audience. So we just kind of, we, we were having fun. We had these recaps. With, I'd hate recaps on TV shows and how uh, staid and ugly they are. Even the best shows, like the Americans, I always feel the recaps, if, if you had never seen the show, you go, what the hell was that? You know, and you couldn't follow it, so we thought we'd do this. Jonathan Colton, who we've worked with and is a friend, do these musical recaps that we just were loved, and we'd love to do that again. So maybe it's something like Idiocracy, where in 10, 12 years, or maybe no one will enjoy it, but in the end of civilization, when there's a nuclear war, someone will dig it out of one, you know, and go, oh my God, this was a good show. I wonder why, why they canceled it 30 or 50 years ago. Amazing. All right, I'm going to turn it over to you guys. Do you have questions? I have a question about Brain Dead. Oh, you're so nice. <laughs> Sorry, the mic is coming. So I'm assuming. Say it again because now you have to say it in the mic. 
I have a How question about... How much did you love Braindead? I loved Braindead so much. <laughs> because you finally explained to me what was going on in Congress. I didn't know before. <laughs> but you didn't know it was only going to be one season when you wrote it. So I wanted to know what had you planned to have happen in subsequent seasons. We were going to change venues every year. We had four thoughts. Uh, after Washington, we were going to go to Wall Street, and we were going to Silicon Valley, third year, and fourth year, Hollywood. Someone pick up this show, please. <laughs> Anyone else? Um, so I work in tech, and I love every episode you did with The Good Wife and Good Fight about weirdness in tech. Um, how do you go about picking those? And if I can give you a suggestion for next year, um, I think you guys should really do something with GDPR and personal data. Wait, wait, say it again. A GDPR, private data, that was absolute mess. And so, yeah, just wondering how you go about picking those. Um, when we started, we were always fascinated just because we're writers, and when writers procrastinate, what you do is surf. Um, and so <laughs> there was always a sense of just looking at the problems and the and the advantages that the Internet and tech brought. And I think one of the things was when you're telling stories, especially when you're at CBS, it's such an industry of cases that you needed to find a niche that other people weren't digging. And I think for some reason, the other shows and Law and & Orders and all that, weren't, they kind of had an old fogeous idea of tech. They weren't really on the cutting edge. They were kind of telling stories that all felt like of four years ago. And so I think part of it was to find our own level, to find our own little gold, you know, gold mine to dig in. And I think that worked. And we're, now we're just we're obsessed with how this current administration really rose on Twitter and the use of – and that should be a plus. The, you know, one of it was looking at the um, – I'm sorry, I'm rambling. But looking at Egypt and how that uh, revolution came about. But then there's a negative side to how totalitarianism can use the Internet to – anyway, so it was a combination of those things. I think you got it. <laughs> but just to follow up on that, I mean, you guys aren't, are you on social media yourselves? You don't really play in that space. Not really. That's, it doesn't hold that much appeal to me. And we talked to other showrunners, and I think there's a lot of danger to it. I mean, you, you obviously saw with Star Wars, um, Last Jedi, you know, the attack of the, uh, you know, it's, there's, I think the ugliest parts of human nature come out through, through it. Our, our daughter said to me when she was about 13, nothing good can come of Twitter. <laughs> and I just thought, okay. <laughs> it's a scary place. I don't go to that side. Um. Okay. Um, big fan of Braindead. Say it in the mic. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're sending these to CBS. So, it's a yeah. friendly big, crowd. Big fan of Braindead. Uh, I won't go into Central Texas, but it blacked out the last two episodes. What? Yeah. It wasn't shown. Oh. I, because we had nobody watching. <laughs> no, no. What did they put on instead? That's what I want to hear. Out. I don't know. Oh. It was the cable or CBS. But anyway, that's not the question. The question is <laughs> Michael Moore. 
Uh, can you talk about? <laughs> can you talk about the Michael Moore? How you? I thought there was a lookalike. No, it's you really him. got him. It's really and got him. Can you talk about that and also maybe censorship or if CBS gave you notes on anything on no, the show? Uh, on in, on Brain Dead, no, we really did not get any any sort of censorship. And with Michael Moore, it was just one of those things that you say in the writers' room. And everyone laughs, and you think, could we actually make that happen? And so we were able to reach out to Michael Moore. Turns out he had been a fan of The Good Wife, which, you know, one of the things I'm most proud of about The Good Wife is that Rush Limbaugh was a fan and Michael Moore was a fan. And you really want to make that show. Um, and so, I don't think that will be the case with A no, Good Fight. No, <laughs> very, very clearly not. Um, so we reached out to Michael Moore and were able to get him to come. Um, with regards to censorship, uh, I don't think on Brain Dead they were they were never quite aware of what we wanted to do. They were very nice to us, and there was a sense that everything comes from Les Moonves over there. I mean, at least for the next month or so. I don't know what's going to happen after that. <laughs> We've but, been up here for an hour. Anything could have happened. Yeah, it could. Um, but it, I think he was such a fan of Good Wife that they gave us enough rope to hang ourselves on brain dead. And so there was not quite, there was worry sometimes about how we talk about the current candidate. There, because the, the campaign was active, this was 2016, whenever we showed Trump, we had to show Hillary, and then we had to show Bernie. And I don't think it extended down to the others. I remember there was an independent, whether we had to show Stein, right? I don't recall. But anyway, those are FCC-based rules, and I think that was their biggest worry on Brain Dead. As long as we had a certain length of time of this candidate, we had to have a certain length of time, which made you know telling jokes hard. Wow! Oh God! Wow! <laughs> on the end right here. So we've talked a lot about the political aspects of the show, but for me, the characters and their arcs were really amazing in particular, especially on procedural shows. You don't see a lot of um, female friendships. And I really enjoyed what you guys did with Diane and Audra's character and the trio with uh, Rose Leslie, Luca, and Marissa. Can you elaborate on that? Well, we're fortunate in that we have a cast that's female heavy. It's... It's not typical on TV. And as a result, you, you get to explore those relationships. And the fact that we have such spectacular actresses makes it a great pleasure. And, you know, and once you see the way certain relationships seem to pop on screen, like uh, the Marissa-Maya friendship, you just want to write more. I mean, one of my very favorite scenes is when Marissa and Baya are in the bar together and rush off to the bathroom together. I mean, so you really, you just want to explore that more. That's my favorite scene, too. It's a, it's a scene where Marissa's interested with his bomb squad guy, and, and uh, but then she realizes that maybe he's interested in Maya. So they run off to the bathroom to have Maya... And, and Maya has a girlfriend. Yeah. So it's, you know, how, how do we get that across to him? That That's not even an option. <laughs> and it was, they're very good together. I mean, partly that, I think partly the show, so much of TV, especially network TV, goes towards romance immediately and puts its hooks into that. And we, 
the love triangle or the of Peter Florek and Alicia Florek and Josh Charles character Will Gardner, Will Gardner. <laughs> uh, it becomes a curse because this worshiping stuff just becomes its own baggage to the show. So I mean, it's fun to do romance, but it was really good just to show the ups and downs of, of friendships. And also, just to follow up on that, on the relationship side, like Luca just. She's interested in the relationship, but it's not her primary driving force. Yeah, exactly. It, which felt true to the character. It, it wasn't as though we were trying to looking to make a statement about feminism or any other thing. It was just like, okay, we know who Luca is. She's very professional. She's very driven. This is how she is going to behave if she ends up getting pregnant. Um, I think I promised someone to Even if you haven't seen Brain Dead, say you like it. <laughs> oh, yeah, I love Brain Dead. Um, yeah, so now that it's been over two years since The Good Wife ended, um, and neither actress is involved in The Good Fight, can you finally tell us uh, what precipitated Juliana and Archie not showing any scenes between season four, episode 15, and season six, episode 22, uh, when green screen was used to splice together footage of the two actresses? <laughs> I'm very happy to address, uh, to answer your question. The answer is no. (laughs) But ask another question. One you've written out, too. Um, So so do you think that there are any uh, actors on The Good Wife who haven't been on The Good Fight yet that you would love to bring in to future seasons? You know what? There is not a single actor we wouldn't love to bring into the good fight. They were all fantastic. So, you know, unfortunately, the story... Can, first of all, there, sometimes it's about their schedules can't accommodate it. But other times the story can't accommodate it. You know, that there's either somebody has disappeared, like Kalinda, or we know that, you know, they've died, like Will Gardner. You know, so... but. Any of them, we but it, to have. The really is Alan Cumming. We want we tr- actually <laughs> partly partly because he's fun and great, but he's Sarah Steele's dad in the show, you know. So we tried to get him back for the impeachment episode instead of Margot Martindale. She was so great to step in, but it was supposed to be Alan, and we just couldn't make it work because he's doing uh, instinct. I'll make you run to the other side again. Sorry, I'm going <laughs> to make you get your workout on the aisle in the back. You talked a lot about how the current political climate shaped what the show looked like this season. And I was just curious, and you've talked about you planned some stuff on tort reform. If the election had gone the other way, what would season of two look like? I mean, what would have driven Diane to microdose? How, how, what would that look like to you? My guess is she wouldn't have microdosed. <laughs> You. And I have actually no idea what that second season would have looked like. <laughs> we, were, um, we weren't supposed to do The Good Fight. It was another showrunner that was doing it, and it didn't work out. And so we had just come off of Good Wife, and we were, I think, a little depleted. I mean, just because after seven seasons, and then we did Brain Dead, 13 episodes, and it was just, we were a little... Um, so we did not have a very good idea for Good Fight, except to look at... Um, uh, Black Lives Matter, kind of in the through the lens of this African American firm, where the diversity hire was 
Diane Lockhart. Uh, and that was the comic premise. But we didn't have much after that. And then Trump won as we were shooting the pilot. So suddenly, Good Fight, the title, suddenly wasn't just a cynical attempt to sound like The Good Wife. It actually had some meaning. So it was very good for us. I mean, sorry for, everyone, for a lot of other people. Um, but it was very good. Given that, are you going to wait for the 2018 elections to play out? It'll be interesting. Yeah, because the writer's room starts before that. I think we may get a stronger sense as we go into it and build a certain way. And we'll have already shot the first episode, too. So it'll be interesting. Can't wait to see. All right, on the end over there. Another brain dead fan. Wait. Another brain dead fan. Why that car song? And were there other songs you considered? Oh, yes. It didn't start with that song. It started with the Dire Straits song, A Walk of Life. There's the musical episode. When I moved to L.A., there was a... Uh, a landlord upstairs who played that nonstop constantly and I thought let's get back at it and play it nonstop in the show and that it's a you know some sense of when the the bugs are coming or when the bad guys are coming you would play this cheery song and there were two reasons we didn't do that one was it was expensive more than we wanted to pay and two there was a website that was playing that as every end of a movie plays better when you play Dire Straits Walk of Life. You can still find that website. It's very funny. They take 500 blows of the Truffaut movie and over that last freeze frame they start playing the Dire Straits song. So it felt like it was overused while um, the car song I think is just cheery and fun, has that bubbly beginning so it's ironic that it's a sign of the evil. All right, one last question. Um, On the aisle in the back, right there. Sorry. Sorry, sorry. She was being very polite. Um, I wanted to ask about your use of technical consultants. I was an attorney with the federal court system for a long time, and your shows feel so real, both from the attorney and the court side. So when you have a room full of playwrights, how do technical consultants come in? What's that interaction like with the writer's room? How does that work? Well, every season we've had some writers that were also lawyers, and that includes On the Good Fight. Um, three, of, three of the writers actually have been lawyers. And in addition, we have um, a consultant in Illinois, an Illinois attorney, whom we can get on the phone. So that's the basis for any reality, any mistakes are us. But in addition... If we need to speak to someone with a particular expertise, like, um, you know, we're doing a, something about divorce and we need to speak to someone about that or, or tax law, typically our um, Illinois consultant puts us in touch with someone. Yeah, it, it, it is a very... It's generally over the phone. We, it's not people coming into the room. It's a heavily researched show. The writers are great. And then sometimes Michelle and I step in and say, but that's not as entertaining. <laughs> we should make it this. So you'll always find some lie at the basis of the, you know, we try to stay as close to reality, but obviously the speed of things happening, which is never the case. We need things to move fast. 
Well, speaking of things moving fast, this panel flew by. Thank you guys so much. Thank Thanks you. to all of you. Thanks for listening to this week's show. We'll be back next time with another great episode. We'll be talking about the new season of The Affair on Showtime. And if you like the show, I'd appreciate it if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Let us know, too, who you want to hear from, what stars and producers should we invite on the show. Email us at podcasts at variety.com. See you next time. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.